0: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Backyard Geology Canada Edition. I am your host, Serena, back again for another bonus episode. Check out episode 4 of this season of Backyard Geology based in Regina, Saskatchewan to learn about continental drift and how it helped bring together the North American continent through the Trans Hudson Orogeny. Our continents essentially float over Earth's semi fluid mantle, coming together and breaking apart time after time in endless geologic cycles. The heart of North America was brought together about 2 billion years ago through a Himalaya sized mountain building event known as the Trans Hudson Orogeny, named after Hudson's Bay, through which it occurred. Today, I am joined by Dr. Fiona Darbyshire in Montreal from the Universite du Québec à Montréal. Fiona has used her knowledge as a geophysicist to help geologists understand the complex and ancient trans-Hudson orogeny. Hello, Fiona. Hello, nice to meet you. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today. When I was researching the trans-Hudson orogeny for the first episode based in Regina, I actually used one of your papers. And a few years ago, I had the opportunity to study the Grenville orogeny to the east of the trans-Hudson. The complexity of it and the lack of obvious evidence today on the surface of the earth made it a challenging event to study. That being said, billions of years of deformation and metamorphism and erosion has made some of the most interesting terrains and lithologies I've ever studied. Like many other geologic events, deciphering the trans huts and the Rajni is like putting together a very messy and intricate puzzle. With that, would you please introduce yourself to listeners?
1: Okay, so I'm Fiona Derbyshire, and I'm a professor at the University of Quebec in Montreal. I've been here for almost 15 years now, and my main focus is geophysical studies of the Canadian Shield, and I've been looking in quite a bit of detail at various parts of the Trans-Hudson origin, the Grenville province, and also some of the older provinces that are sandwiched between the two orogenies.
0: So for listeners not familiar with geophysics, how is geophysics used to study geologic provinces and used to study orogenic events?
1: Well, as the name suggests, geophysics is basically using techniques from the world of physics to understand the structure and the dynamics of the Earth. And there are many different ways that you can use geophysics to look deep into the Earth to try to figure out what the underlying structures are. And that's particularly important with these large orogenic belts because of course what you see at the surface is just a small part of the overall structure and to understand how the continents collided and what kinds of structures are preserved you need to look not only at the surface geology which can already give quite a lot of very interesting clues but also look way down into the crust and even into the upper mantle to see how the plates have come together and what kinds of structures are preserved And there are various ways in which you can do that. You can use techniques from electromagnetism, for example, magnetism and gravity, but the most common technique and one that I tend to use is seismology. So that's looking at the waves either from explosions, if you think about exploration geophysics, recorded on profiles of seismic recorders, Or in my case, using the waves from distant earthquakes that are happening all around the world. And the waves from those earthquakes are traveling through the materials, the rocks of the crust and the uppermost mantle on their way to the seismic stations at the surface. And we can measure the speed at which those waves are are traveling through those rocks and come up with some clues about the structures and how they relate to the surface geology. That's particularly important in areas such as the southern part of the Trans-Hudson or the central part where the surface geology is actually completely hidden by sedimentary sequences, such as in southern Saskatchewan, or indeed by a very large basin and marine area like Hudson Bay.
0: Excellent. So geophysics is sort of like some laser vision for the subsurface to look at the structures.
1: Pretty much. The analogy that's very commonly used by geophysicists is it's it's rather like medical imaging. So if you think about MRI scans and CAT scans and so on, where you've got energy traveling through the patient and being recorded to build up an image of the interior of the patient's body, it's very much the same idea, except that this time the The waves that we're using, the energy is coming from earthquakes or natural or other active sources.
0: Right. And then the the waves that return to the surface is what helps you build an image of the subsurface.
1: Exactly. So what happens is that if you can install a network of seismograph stations in the area that you're interested in, then the waves from the distant earthquakes are coming up through the upper mantle and the crust underneath those stations. And when they're recorded, you can use various different analysis techniques to look at the different types of earthquake waves that that arrive. And each of those waves, whether it be the arrival time or the exact form of the seismic wave as recorded on the station, can give clues about the structure through which it's passed. Thank you for explaining how that works to listeners. I find geophysics
0: really interesting because it's so important to study ancient surfaces like this that are old, eroded, or as you mentioned, covered up by sediments, because we're talking billions of years ago, right?
1: That's right. I mean, the Trans Hudson, you're talking about 2 billion, 1.8 billion or so. So there's a lot of erosion, a lot of cover that's happened since then. And really what you need to do is get at the deep structure to tease out how this all happened and how the whole system evolved. Let's talk a little bit
0: about the surface geology. Is there anything, what can you directly study from the surface? I know we just mentioned it's hard, it's eroded, and it's covered up in some places.
1: What do you see from the surface? Well, if you can get at the place where the trans-Hudson origin is exposed at the surface, so that includes the northern third of Saskatchewan and Manitoba, then it's possible to directly sample all the different belts that make up the trans-Hudson and the two older um, blocks that occur on either side of it. And so you can, for example, map out the surface geology, the rock types. There are people who do... A lot of dating work on those rocks to figure out when they were put in place, when they were created and how they evolved over time. So metamorphism, for example. And then also the structural geologists can get an idea of how the boundaries work at the surface and try to extrapolate those perhaps a couple of kilometers into the Earth. So, for example, they can look at the dips and the strikes of geological boundaries and try to figure out how those might evolve with depth. So it's complementary to the deeper structure the geophysicists look at.
0: So studying an event like the Trans-Hudson requires different types of geologists. You mentioned we have structural geologists that look at the structure and can use that to predict For example, what the mountain belt would have looked like when it was there and also what might be in the subsurface. Then you have the geochemists, which look at formation ages and ages of metamorphism or recrystallization. And then you have the geophysicists such as yourself that go deep within the ground to look at the subsurface structure.
1: Yes, that's right. And in fact, the Manitoba-Saskatchewan portion of the trans-Hudson origin was studied jointly with all of those techniques through the Lithoprobe program back in the late 90s and early 2000s. And the idea behind that program was to produce a series of transects across Canada, including some of the areas of primary geological interest like the trans hudson and basically throw all of these different complementary techniques at it to try to understand better how the whole thing was formed and how it evolved over time because you really need ultimately all of those techniques to gain a proper understanding
0: absolutely it's interesting you mentioned the lithoprobe program because my earth science professor talked about it in my one of my first earth science classes ever at university we learned about the lithoprobe program <laughs> Can you comment at all on the magnitude of the trans-Hudson orogeny, both lateral and vertical? I know we don't see a lot of the vertical extent nowadays in the prairies, so it'd be interesting to know what that looked like billions of years ago when it initially formed.
1: Yeah, so the trans-Hudson is an enormous structure. It's over 4,000 kilometers in its entire length, and that includes sections that are in the U.S. snaking through Canada, and it also joins into other orogenic belts in South Greenland and maybe even Scandinavia. It's also very wide. It varies from about 300 to at least 800 kilometers wide in different parts. And when you look at the scale and the shape of the orogeny, it's very similar in fact to what we see today in the Himalayan Tibetan belt. In fact, the shape is almost identical. There's been quite a lot of literature in the last few years looking at the structures and similarities between the trans-Hudson and the Himalayan Karakoram Tibetan belt. And then in terms of vertical extent, we certainly can see a lot of very interesting structures preserved in the crust, where we have a decent amount of resolution to look at the small-scale structure. But there's even a signature left over in The mantle part of the plate below. So there are seismic signatures that are suggesting the presence of that trans-Hudson mountain belt and its signature within what we call the mantle lithosphere, which is essentially the plate. It seems that there are some structures and some variations that could be correlated with what we see at the surface for the trans-Hudson. So it's definitely a plate scale event.
0: Mm-hmm. And you, you mentioned you can see that in the mantle, are you referring to like the moho is deeper in that area where you see like intense crustal thickening?
1: That's part of it, yes. So the underneath the trans-Hudson, compared with the older blocks on either side, the moho is indeed generally deeper. It has a rather different character when we start looking at its structure on the seismic waveforms, but I'm actually talking even somewhat deeper. So using seismic imaging, we can look at the structure of the mantle lithosphere down to about 200 or 300 kilometres. So scale the entire plate. And it does seem to be at least some kind of signature of the trans-Hudson running through down to at least 150 kilometres depth. So it's really quite an enormous feature in the end.
0: Wow. Yes, it's, it's amazing how deep you can see the effects of this, because like I said, we aren't able to see it on the surface. As a reminder to listeners, the moho is the boundary between the uh, crust and the mantle. And when we see intense crustal thickening, the depth of the moho will decrease. So obviously, parts of the trans-Hudson are preserved, as we've mentioned, Um, otherwise you wouldn't be be able to study it. Can we talk about how it was preserved so well and what exactly is preserved?
1: So what you see in the trans-Hudson is the two large Archean blocks, the superior craton on one side and the composite Churchill province on the other side, And in between those, as I mentioned, there's this very wide zone, 300 to 800 kilometers wide, depending on where you are along strike, where you preserve a lot of younger material, the Proterozoic material, and rather more so than one often sees in quite a lot of other continental collisions. And there's two main reasons for that, one of which geologists already knew about from the shape of the trans-Hudson and the shape of the two cratons overall. So when you look at the superior craton, which underlies much of Ontario and Quebec and a little bit into Manitoba, the northwestern boundary of the superior is a kind of horseshoe shape. The geologists talk about a double indenter because instead of the whole thing colliding all at once, you had two promontories that came in first. And then it's essentially a kind of divot in the middle, that horseshoe shape, where it's possible to preserve some of the intervening structure from the old ocean, which closed to form the trans-Hudson, which would include a lot of different fragments of material, such as oceanic island arcs or continental slivers. What's particularly exciting for the Manitoba-Saskatchewan segment of the, of the trans-Hudson is that when they did the geophysical surveys, they found that there was, an actually, there was actually an extra small Archean block, which they called the Sask Craton, which essentially sandwiched between the two larger cratons and helped to preserve the origin and the protozoic material around it. So it kind of acted as as a backstop to prevent the two major continental blocks from closing completely in that area. And that's something that's not at all visible at the surface. It's only something that one can really see by looking at the geophysical surveys.
0: How was the Sask Craton identified? Was it geophysical surveys or dating or a combination of the two?
1: Well, it ended up being a combination. There were a couple of spots in the exposed part of the Trans-Hudson in northern Saskatchewan and Manitoba, which were of Archean age. But the connection that was made to a proper little cratonic fragment that was preserved down there, That wasn't obvious until the geophysical surveys came in and could actually see that as a distinct structure.
0: Right. I have definitely heard in geology where geochemists are going about dating rocks and then they find one that's ridiculously old compared to the surrounding rock and that's where it spikes the interest and investigation.
1: Yeah, there's only a couple of small areas, if I remember rightly, where the sask penetrates the surface and can be observed directly. So the vast majority of it's completely buried hmm.
0: Yeah. And it's just that that one little thing that makes you go, oh, well, that's that's weird. We should look into that.
1: Exactly. And then it's a case of putting together the pieces of the puzzle.
0: Um, there exists another famous orogeny in Canada, the Grenville orogeny. In
1: brief, how does this orogeny compare to the trans-Hudson? Well, it's also an enormous structure. It's pretty much global scale. So the Grenville Orogeny is thought to be part of the large continental collision that formed a supercontinent called Rodinia. So we can see vestiges of the Grenville or its associated orogenic belts throughout a number of different continents that we see today. Again, it's thought to be a Himalayan scale orogenic belt not the same shape, but certainly the same sort of size and the same width, it's also thought to have created a plateau rather like what we see in Tibet today. So we have the continental collision between what's called Laurentia, so ancestral North America, and Amazonia, which created what we see today as the Grenville Orogeny in eastern Canada. And the extent of the Grenville as we go further south into the U.S., becomes less clear. It's a little bit like the trans-Hudson in which the orogenic material is covered by later material, such as paleozoic sedimentary belts. But in eastern Canada, the Grenville origin is very well exposed. And so it can be studied by both geology and geophysics simultaneously, probably rather more than the trans-Hudson can be.
0: Interesting. So what happens when you go more south down into the States is it's just more covered by material?
1: That's right. It's um, a lot of Paleozoic sedimentary cover. And to an extent that the boundary between the Grenville and the older core of the continent becomes less and less easy to figure out. You certainly can't see it at the surface because of the cover. And some some of the surveys are a little ambiguous as to where the boundary really is. Interesting. So there's still lots of work to be done. Absolutely. I mean, here in Canada, we can actually go out in the field and stand right on the Grenville Front, which is the northernmost extent of Grenvillian deformation, sitting on top of the older superior craton and its margins. You can actually go and stand there, but once you get into the US, the whole thing's hidden again. Right.
0: Well, having the, the shield exposed is certainly a bonus for geologists in Canada, where you can stand right on the bedrock.
1: Absolutely. And then you can start to try and figure out, are those boundaries that you see at the surface preserved at depth? So this is where the geophysics comes in. Is it a vertical boundary? Is it a dipping boundary? What's going on underneath if it's a dipping boundary? And what the lithoprobe surveys showed, and subsequent um, other seismological surveys as well, is that the Grenville material is thrust over the older continental margins. So there's Archean material underneath the Grenville to about two or three hundred kilometres south of the Grenville front, which is the surface boundary. So it's actually quite a complicated structure in the end.
0: Oh, yes, it's extremely complicated. But as I learn more about geology, I'm seeing how how fortunate I was to be in southern Ontario and able to see, well, I mean, if you go a little bit further north, can see the shield and see these rocks exposed and see the get a hint of of the structures that then go into the subsurface. So it's a great spot to study and to learn.
1: Absolutely. And there's still a lot of work to be done. There's still a few places, quite a few places in Quebec, for example, where we have partial information from both geology and geophysics, but the area is so vast, there's still quite a bit that's unexplored in detail. So there's still a lot to learn about the variations along strike, for example, of the Grenville origin. Absolutely. Thank you so
0: much for joining me today, Fiona. It was interesting to hear the perspectives of a geophysicist studying some of these ancient and massive structures. I'm glad that we have people like you studying them and to be able to tell us what's going on beneath the subsurface. Well,
1: it's a pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me.
0: Okay. Nice to meet you. Bye.
1: Bye. Using
0: physics to explore the subsurface helps researchers like Fiona uncover complicated and ancient subsurface structures, such as those preserved from the Trans Hudson Orogeny, which occurred upwards of 2 billion years ago. The full story is not visible from the surface, making geophysics key to deciphering the geologic past. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and family. Backyard Geology Canada Edition is part of the Geology Podcast Network and is sponsored by Travelling Geologist. You can find more episodes from the Geology Podcast Network wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. Follow Travelling Geologist on Instagram and Twitter at Travelling Geologist to never miss a new episode release.